0: Well, this weekend is training camp. That's how you need to think about it. That's how I introduced it last time to you. But you need to think about this time where we're focusing on discipleship. And all we're talking about in these sermons is what does it just mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to live like a Christian? The very basic foundational things. That's all we're talking about this weekend. This is training camp for when we go back home. We've been studying the gospel of Matthew, so I want you to grab your Bible and open it right on up to the gospel of Matthew. And chapter 11 is where we're going to start tonight. Last night you turned to 14 different passages. Tonight we're going to turn to 14 different passages. Um, that wasn't on purpose, but as I prep this, I saw, well, we got some patterns going on here. And one of them is that there are two kinds of people when it comes to Jesus. That's a pattern that we see in the Gospel of Matthew. We see the crowds are always separated. Now, Jesus is going to talk about these two different groups, and he's going to say something about you. If this weekend you decide to be a disciple and you Turn from your sin and you say, I'm going to follow Christ. Well, then Jesus has some things to say about you. And if you're one of those people uh, that's still holding out, he's going to have something to offer you. He actually has an invitation. And that's really what this is right here in uh, Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 25. This comes right after a whole group of cities refused to believe in Jesus. And Jesus calls them out and says, I have done miracles, I have done mighty works, and you still. Don't believe that I'm the Christ. And even more than that, you're not willing to follow me. You're not even willing to be my disciples. So he calls them out, and then he turns to the small group of disciples. And look what he says. This is Matthew 11, verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. So he talks about the disciples and he compares them to like a a group of kids. He's like, there's these infinite, massive, world-changing thoughts that the smart people are not understanding, but the simple people are getting. And why are they getting it? It's because they're smarter. That's not why. If they were smarter, they would be called the smarter people. They're not smarter. They're like little children. Jesus says, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. So no one knows Jesus perfectly other than the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. Jesus is the only one who knows the Father perfectly. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So it's interesting because as you read this book, you think, well, wait a minute. Doesn't Jesus reveal God to everybody? Well, it seems so, right? He, He preaches about God. He tells people about God. But really in people's hearts, it's only really the people that God has revealed this to and open their blind eyes that they actually are going to be the ones that make the decision to follow Jesus. He says, this is all revealed. And then after he says, this has all been revealed, which sounds like you don't have any say in the matter. Look at verse 28. Now he'll turn to the disciples and and all the people who are around. And he says, come to me, all who labor and they're heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So Jesus is inviting people like you, especially if you're not a disciple yet. He's talking to you, and he says, if you are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Now, he's not talking about, if you have a big backpack, I'll take it off your shoulders. He's not talking about, you know, if you gained a lot of weight, I'll take the weight off, right? What does he mean? Think about it. He says, if you're like heavy, heavy, and there's something on you, what is he talking about here, right? He's talking about something very specific. We're going to find it right here in the next verse. He says, take my yoke upon you. So a yoke is a figurative way that the Bible talks about the the person that you will be a learner from. Look what he says next. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. It's this image, back in the day they had these animals and these animals would have big, like wooden, they look like necklaces, but what they were 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 stalks to keep animals going in the same direction. And he says, a lot of people have this big yoke on their neck. And he says, I can give you a different yoke. What does that mean? Um, He's saying that the people who were not believing in him, they were following some different teaching. They were following different, you know, spiritual guides. And he says, you're heavy laden because you got something on your neck that you can't shake off. He's talking about how these Pharisees and these scribes have made all these rules for the people to follow that they're not able to follow. And he says, I can change that for you. And look what he says next. Learn from me. Learn from me. That's the key to understanding the next part of discipleship. The first step is that you realize I want to follow Jesus, right? And that's the first step. Repenting of your sins, giving up whatever you need to, to follow him. But what about once you become a disciple? What's next? Well, he says part of choosing to be his disciple is to say that you are going to learn from Jesus and not from yourself. You're going to learn from Jesus, not some other world religion. You're going to learn from Jesus, not from what the culture says is right or wrong. You're, you're going to take Jesus' yoke upon you. The yoke was a figurative way to talk about who was your teacher, who is your master, what yoke do you put on yourself. And a lot of them had the yoke of the scribes and the Pharisees and of this legalistic form of righteousness that Jesus says, no, you need to do something more than that. You need to be perfect. The only way you can be saved and be perfect is if Jesus is your Lord and he forgives you. Look what he says next. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Like he's offering these people something very, very good. He's offering them something that's life saving material right here. He says, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So Jesus is trying to say, the thing that I will subject you to is lighter and better than the thing that the Pharisees and these other teachers that they're subjecting you to very interesting. But the point is, everyone's got a yoke. You either got your yoke of your teaching, or you got the yoke of Jesus's teaching. And the point here is, look, I I want you to say, I want to be a learner from Jesus. Which, by the way, if we're we're defining what discipleship is, it's very interesting that in verse 29, the word to learn is the word in Greek, uh, mathete, which that might sound familiar, because mathetes is the word which means disciple. Mathete is the verb construction of this to say, you need to learn. So what does that mean? It means, what is a disciple? A disciple is not just a follower. In fact, like the way that the word is constructed, a disciple is one of those people, is a student. That's, a, that's how you can define discipleship. It's, it's being a student. It's being a learner. That's literally what he says here. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, you need to next be a learner from Jesus. Like this. This is a university somewhere where you got one professor and all these people are putting on them the yoke of the professor, right? Whatever the professor's teaching, whatever assignments he has, but they took it upon themselves. No one made him go to that class. They chose to. Some of them went into student debt to be in that class and they chose, I'm putting this yoke upon me to be a learner. That's what Jesus is calling us to do, right? To be a disciple, really, it also means to be a person who submits to learn from Christ, and the word submit is important because this is not a casual dealing where you can choose to take a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of your own self. Take a little bit of you know, influence from Jesus, add a little bit of the world, add a little bit of another world religion, add a little of your own thoughts, and boom, there's your little cocktail of truth. That's not how this all works. Jesus says, I need to be the one who teaches you which means you need to submit to what I have to say. Like, think about, that's a really, really bold claim. You better listen to me. It'd be better for you to listen to me than to listen to anybody else. That's what Jesus claims. To be a disciple is to be a learner. Another passage I want you to see as we start to write down some points, this will give us our first point. Turn to Matthew chapter 20. This is very important. We got disciples who are already disciples at this point who have a disagreement. These two disciples, James and John, ask their mommy if uh, she could go ask Jesus if they could be the two most important disciples. Uh, and uh, actually, their, their mommy, their, their mother, the, the wife of Zebedee, is probably Jesus' aunt, right? So these are Jesus' cousins asking Jesus, through their aunt Mary, uh, to give them some things. And in this text... The mother goes up to Jesus and says, hey, can my two sons sit at your your right hand and your left hand in your kingdom? And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. You want to be the greatest? You don't know what you're asking for your sons. In fact, you might wish they weren't the greatest if you knew what you were asking. And then the others, the ten others heard it and they were indignant. Starting in verse 25, what's on the screen here. Verse 25 says, but Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. So the the bosses, the generals, the kings, the, the, the lords, the slave owners, right? Whoever you can imagine in the ancient world that was powerful, what do they do? They take their authority and lord it over the people under them to make the people under them serve them, right? That's how it works. But, he says, it shall not be so among you. But whoever, right, and whoever among the disciples, we're talking about Christians here, whoever of these disciples would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So if we're talking about being a learner from Jesus, here's a prerequisite. Right? Like when you go to college, there's certain prerequisite classes you have to take before you enter any other classes. Can I give you a prerequisite to follow Jesus and to be a learner from his? You have to have a humble attitude. That is a prerequisite. You have to be willing to say, I'm wrong. Jesus is right. You have to be willing to say, I want to serve others, not just have others serve me. I have to say, if I want to be a disciple, one of the things that you should count the cost of is, are you willing to be a servant of others? Because I don't want to trick you into becoming a disciple this weekend. I don't want you to become a disciple and say, I didn't understand what it was all about. I want you to know totally what it's all about and the consequences either way. But the prerequisite to being a disciple is to have a humble attitude. I wonder how many of us really have humble attitudes or how many of us expect that everyone will serve us that we expect that we deserve a lot of things. There's a word for this uh, that gets thrown around a lot today. It's called entitlement, right? How entitled are you? Right? H- how many things do you think you deserve, right? Or even when you serve people, sometimes here's the funny thing, you think that if you serve people, this is how we naturally think, that then they owe you back, right? That makes sense to us. Well, Jesus says, if you are gonna be great, if Jesus is gonna think of you highly, well, then you need to be a servant of all, and be willing to have the lowest position. You need to be willing to serve other people, right? The people that Jesus thinks are the greatest in this room are the people that serve other people the most. I say that with a lot of confidence, because that's exactly what Jesus teaches his disciples right here. If you're gonna be a learner from him, this is step one. Am I humble enough to learn from Jesus? Am I humble enough to even learn from other people, even people that are wrong a lot of the time, right? This is amazing. He's not saying, just be humble to me. He's not saying, the greatest among you will be the biggest servant of Jesus. He doesn't say that. He says the greatest among you will be the the, the biggest servant of you guys, each other, other disciples, other people that God has created. That's the prerequisite, okay? The second thing, if we're going to turn to another passage, is is right here in Matthew chapter 10. You can write this second point down. Um, Another thing we need to learn is we need to learn to endure the hardships of a disciple of Christ. That's the second thing. Learn to endure the hardships. And you might say, wait a minute. I thought Jesus said that taking his yoke upon you was easy and light compared to being heavy. That's true, he did say that. But one chapter earlier, he describes in very vivid detail the struggles that his disciples would go through, which is why you can't cherry pick verses and go in the middle of Matthew 11 and say, oh, this sounds great. Jesus is saying the Christian life is easy. It's not hard, it's light. Jesus did say something along those lines. It sounds quite similar to that. But because in the chapter before, he's going to say stuff like, I'm about to send you out. And if you're Matthew 10, this is what you're going to find. Matthew 10, verse 16. He says, I'm going to send you out like you're sheep and you're in the midst of wolves. I'm going to send you. It's like everybody wants to eat you alive. That's what it's going to feel like when you go to school. That's what it's going to feel like for some of you to go back home in your families if, if people at home aren't Christians. You're going to feel like they want to eat you alive, even if you didn't do anything wrong. You're going to feel like if you're a disciple of Christ, people be against you. It's like, I was nice to you, but you're against me. It's like, I, I, I treated you well, but now you don't like me. Right? That is what it will feel like. Look what he says, Matthew 10, 16. Behold, I'm sending you as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents... And innocent, as doves, right? That means that you're going to be a person who's willing to uh, do the right thing, right? You're innocent in the sense that you're 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 not breaking the rules, right? You want to be as shrewd as a serpent, and again, how smart is a snake versus a dove, right? I think it's figuratively speaking. You can imagine a snake is crafty; it slithers around; it, it kind of finds its way in, and then doves are just like birds that get shot very easily right like your dads go shoot doves or whatever they're they're pretty easy to catch right Uh, snake hunting is a whole nother thing right they fight back that they they you know jump out of things and they claw whatever right there's two different kinds of animals and again I know we don't handle snakes and we don't handle doves very often but you can kind of get the idea you want to be smart and shrewd and he's telling them you're like sheep with a bunch of wolves people are going to want to eat you alive you are going to have hardships So to be a learner is to say, I guess I have to believe Jesus to say, it's better to be a disciple of his than to be a disciple of the Pharisees. I guess the yoke that is on me is much lighter because that's what Jesus says, but it's not like nothing. Being a disciple of Christ is a tough thing I know we talk about that a lot, but but it's something we got to talk about. And Jesus is very clear. It's a tough thing. I mean, just drop down to verse 24. Look what he says next. Um, After he says, be careful about people, be careful about uh, thinking that if you're good with people, you'll be good with uh, them for a long time. In verse 24, he says, a disciple is not above his teacher. So uh, a disciple and a teacher. What's a disciple? A disciple is a learner. A disciple is a student. You see how you can even get a definition of what a disciple is just by looking at the word teacher? You, if you don't know what a disciple is, you do know what a teacher is. Right? So what are we talking about? We're talking about a, a student and a teacher. So he says, if you're going to be my disciple, you're not going to be better and, and you're not going to have an easier life than me. Oh, and by the way, he says, uh, a slave is not above his, his master. Is it enough for a disciple to be like his teacher and a servant to be like his master? Well, that's a good thing. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, which is another word for Satan, how much more will they malign those of his household? So if you're a, a Christian and you're gonna decide to be a disciple, one thing you need to do, just a warning for you, you need to, be, you need to expect to be hated like Christ was hated. You, you have to expect that. If you don't expect that, if you think what uh, we're offering and saying, hey, we really wanna invite you to become a disciple this weekend, but it's gonna be easy. It's going to be really easy. You're going to be a learner from Jesus, but it's going to be really easy. Uh, Jesus says it's easier than being a a legalistic disciple of the Pharisees. That's true. But there will be some hardships like being hated. And I want you to ask yourself the question. Just be mature real quick and, and, and honestly evaluate your own self. How much are you bothered by being hated by other people? Right? Be mature. Think about it, right? This is pretty self-reflective. But doesn't it bother you when people hate you or malign you? Like they say stuff about you that's not true. or They put you down. It's like, I didn't, I didn't do anything to deserve that. Does that bother you? It bothers me. It should bother you. It naturally bothers us, right? And Jesus says, you have to expect that that's going to happen. So when it does happen, you don't freak out and you don't think, man, I don't know why this is happening. I don't understand. So you don't get discouraged. You just say, oh yeah, this is what Jesus says. Look at, uh, look at the next verse, verse 26. Let's just keep going through the, the gospel of Matthew, verse uh, chapter ten. He says, So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on housetops, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Think about what Jesus is saying there. He says, here's going to be your temptation. If you're a disciple, you will have a fear of man problem. We all have it to some degree or another. Some people don't struggle with it as much as others. But most of us have a fear of man problem. What that means is we fear people and their opinion of us. We are deathly afraid. And some of us, like, just to be honest... Maybe your very reason that you say, I won't become a disciple, is because you're afraid of certain people's opinion of you. If you go tell them, I'm a disciple of Jesus now, and you're thinking of how they're going to laugh at you, and then that's going to keep you from inheriting eternal life, because you're afraid of what somebody thinks of you, or you're afraid of certain friends and what they might say or or some of you uh, maybe professing christians you're afraid to tell people i'm not a christian because you're afraid that your friends might think less of you because now you're admitting i I wasn't really a christian we have a fear of man problem and jesus says don't be afraid of people don't be afraid of even those who want to kill you because all they can do is kill your body because they can't kill the soul but there is one who can kill or another word for kill to destroy eternally destroy a, a body and a soul and it's god You should fear God. We studied that this summer if you came to revival with us. We said there's appropriateness to fearing God. Even the God who is your father, just like it's appropriate for you to fear your earthly father. If you have no fear whatsoever at all of your earthly father, you probably don't have the relationship that is godly and God-honoring right? And that might be your fault or their fault. I don't know. I can't can't tell you, right? Depending on your situation. But the point is, God is a father who should be feared. Because when we really think about it, if we expect hardships, if we expect to be maligned or whatever, and we trust God and we know like, hey, I'm good with God though, then we're okay. But it's when we don't think of God, it's when we don't fear God, and when we think of, man, I'm just so nervous about what people are going to say. That God says, "Uh, don't you know that I care about you? Look at verse 29. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. There's not a single chipmunk in a tree out here. There's not a single gopher buried beneath the snow that is not known by name, whatever, however God knows those gophers, right? Every hair on that gopher's weird back is numbered by God, and he knows it completely. And nothing happens to the little gophers that you see outside. Nothing Unless God has approved it and given it the thumbs up and he knows nothing will happen to them. And are you concerned that you're going to be a disciple of Christ and God's going to leave you out to dry? You think God's not going to have your back? You think that God will leave you to suffer and he'll never give you any consolation in your heart? You think that you'll never be vindicated in God's sight? Like, do you really think that? And he says, that's, that's a stupid thing to think, right? But well, we often think it when we fear man. We totally think it. He says, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more valued than many sparrows. Another thing that you can um, expect here is I, I don't want you to fear them or whoever is opposing you. I want you to know that God is watching over you. This is a promise for every disciple. God is watching over you and he has special care for you. So whatever opposition you face because you say, I have to do what the Bible says, and then your parents don't understand or your school friends don't understand or the people on your sports team think you're, you're lame or whatever because you, you say, I have to do the right thing. Right? And you're concerned about their response. Well, don't be afraid of them. Don't even act in fear. Some of you say, I'm not afraid of them, I'm not afraid of them. But you care so much about their opinion of you that you won't do anything that's out of line with their expectations for you. Right? That's fear, man. Don't fear them. Trust that God's watching over you. Right? Verse 32, keep reading. Jesus says, so... Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who's in heaven. Jesus is saying, yeah, that, that just kind of makes sense, right? If you're a person who, before other people, is not ashamed to say, yeah, I know Jesus. I'm a disciple of Jesus. I don't mind wearing a shirt that says it. I don't mind telling people I go to church. I don't mind telling people my whole story of how I'm a disciple. I don't mind that at all. It doesn't bother me. I'm not, I don't have this like pit in my stomach that maybe someone will find out I'm a Christian not afraid of that at all. Well, Jesus says, well, those people, those are the people that God is proud of. He's not ashamed to know them, but whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who's in heaven. Jesus puts it like this earlier in the Gospel of Matthew. He'll say, I never knew you. You're not one of mine, right? And, And how is it evidenced? In, in life. Well, because you were so afraid for people to know that you're associated with Jesus. If that's true of you, right, I'm inviting you. Let's be done with that. Let's become a disciple who's not ashamed. And if you are a disciple, don't be ashamed of Christ. Don't be ashamed to be associated or connected to him. Don't be afraid of that. Right? And I hope you notice all this learning is really most appropriate for those of you who are disciples. This is not a sermon just for people who are not disciples yet. In fact, this is probably the most appropriate sermon for those of you who are disciples. Remember what Jesus calls you to. Remember what you need to be and who you need to be and how you need to act when we get home and while we're here. Don't be ashamed to be connected to Christ. I think a lot of our conversations would change if we actually live this text out that you're looking at in your Bibles. Because the way that you might talk with other Christians, it's so open and it's so free and you're so willing to talk about God, but with non Christians, you're so uh, afraid to offend them or, or uh, say something that they might not like or it might end the conversation. So, so we just kind of get afraid. Right? But when we step back and look at the words of Jesus here, isn't it kind of convicting? Isn't it kind of just makes us seem foolish, right? Like, what, what's the big deal? What are they going to do? Hate me? What are they going to do? Malign me? Oh, they might, and, and, but that doesn't even matter. Because Jesus says you're gonna be good with God. Next thing, look at verse 34. We're just, if you notice, going straight through the text here. Next verse, which, by the way, uh, this whole section, if you look at the the top of of your page here, the the title in my Bible, at least, for Matthew chapter 10, is The Twelve Apostles. And then next it says Jesus sends out the Twelve Apostles. So this sermon that Jesus preaches is the second sermon. In, in the gospel of Matthew. The first is the Sermon on the Mount. This we sometimes call uh, the, the missionary discourse. Like he, he's, he's speaking to the people who are about to be missionaries, the, the disciples that he's sending out. But look what he says to them in verse 34. He says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. What does a sword do, right? A sword could kill, a sword could hurt. Is that what he's saying? He's come to hurt the earth? Well, no, not exactly. It would get we understand it as we keep reading. He says, For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter in law against her mother in law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. So, what is he saying here? He's saying a sword can do a lot of things it can poke, it can prod, but the main thing it can do is it can divide right? You, you have a knife, or you have a, a kitchen knife, or whatever, and why do you have that kitchen knife? It's really big, and maybe it's serrated for your bread, or whatever, or maybe it's not serrated, and it's for your meat, or whatever you cut in the kitchen. What does it do? It separates. Every time you, you do a stroke with a, with a little mini sword, what does it always do? It's separating, separating, separating. So when Jesus says, I came to bring a sword, he says, I'm separating. We, we saw that in Matthew 3, didn't we? When John said, there's wheat, and there's chaff, there's trees that bear fruit, and there's trees that don't. There's weeds in the field that are bad and evil, and there's also wheat. There's sheep, and there's goats. Right? There's lambs, and there's wolves. Like, You see how all in this gospel, it's like Matthew's always trying to show you uh, uh, pairs of things, opposites. And you're supposed to learn from this. Well, Jesus says, I've come to separate. There will be uh, people you know, in this room. There'll be brothers and sisters who one wants to become a Christian, one doesn't. There's going to be boyfriends and girlfriends. One wants to become a Christian, one doesn't. There's going to be relatives. Maybe you want to become a Christian. Your parents don't want to become Christians. Maybe they want to become Christians and you don't want to become Christians. What did Jesus do? All of a sudden he just like chopped up your family. And you can say, wow, why, why would Jesus do that? He literally says that's what's going to happen. Right? It'd be best of all if a whole family, a whole household believed. We see in the book of Acts, a lot of households all believed at the same time. And it's amazing, right? But sometimes that doesn't happen. And sometimes households are divided. And Jesus goes even further. Look at the next one. He he says, uh, it's in verse 37. This is Matthew 10, 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. If you love anybody more than Jesus, and you're not willing to give something up, if you're not willing to have a hard conversation, more than Jesus, right? If you love father, mother, son, daughter, right? Which for you, you don't have a son or a daughter, and you probably, whatever, maybe you love your parents, but they're probably quick on the list to get rid of, right? Because you're a teenager. But you got people that it's like, I, I don't want to offend them. I, I, I want to be right with them. And like, I certainly wouldn't want to be cut off from them if that's what Jesus asked me to be. But he says, if, you, if you're not willing to do that, you're not worthy of me. That's a weird, like, uh, have you ever thought, like, am I worthy enough to be with Jesus? I don't know. Sometimes we, we don't think that way. But Jesus says, look, if you're one of those people who, who refuses to do it, you're not worthy of me. So the, the response is, if you, if you feel that tug in your heart, like, I do love father and mother, I do love son or daughter, I do love boyfriend or girlfriend, I do love friend, I do love sport, I do love whatever, more than Jesus, that, then here's what I'm saying, then let's learn tonight, let's learn to let go of that and trust Jesus more. Wait, I, I can have you write it down. You need to expect to lose close relationships for Christ. Expect to lose close relationships. Not all your close relationships. Some relationships will get stronger because you become a Christian, but others will get weaker. Some will have to go away entirely. Not that that's immediately the goal. Just like he doesn't say, hey, if you become a Christian and your father or your mother's not a Christian, then never talk to them again, right? That's not what he says. In fact, you should do all that you can to influence them and to win them to Christ, but What will happen is they will cut you off. So your job is not to cut off father or mother or son or daughter, right? Unless you've got some kind of relationship that's sinful. The point is to say, I want to do what I can to follow Christ. And if this relationship is held above following Jesus, then I guess I just got to be done with that. Verse 38, he goes on, continuing to talk about whoever's worthy of him. Jesus says, and whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Doesn't that remind you of the the first verse we looked at this weekend in Matthew 16? If you wanna follow Jesus, you wanna come after him, deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow him, right? Uh, He says, if you're not willing to end your life, and I'm not talking about suicide, he's not talking about that. And when he says, be ready to die, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about placing your life in his hands and saying, not just like my death, but also my life. And for you, here's what that might look like, your future. To say, I'm willing to let Jesus define what my future is going to look like. I'm willing to let Jesus define my future friendships, my future relationships, my future family, my future job, my future with my sports, whatever. Right? I'm willing to let Jesus define my future. And I'm going to follow him in the future. Because if you're not willing to do that, you're not worthy of him. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's exactly uh, the quote that we studied later on. He repeats that. Uh, when he's talking to the disciples later. Basically what I'm saying, next one, value Jesus more than your life. Or, or you could also add, or anything in your life. Right? But value Jesus more than your life. Here he, he calls it in the most, uh, the most graphic way. Right? Be willing to take up your cross. Be willing to say, my life is over. Because right? a person who carries a cross in the ancient world, you know what that meant? That meant they're walking to death. So they were sentenced to death and then on the way to die, right? Because if you were carrying a cross, if you take up your cross, you weren't dead yet, right? You were still living, you're still alive, but your fate was sealed, right? So here's what he says. That's kind of, it's a negative picture, but that is kind of what some of us need to think about with discipleship. I need to be willing to take up my cross and say, I'm letting Jesus define whatever comes in my future. Verse 40, next verse. Jesus continues to talk to them. He says, whoever receives you receives me. So if you receive a disciple and you love them because they're a follower of Jesus, it's like you're receiving Jesus into your house or Jesus into your friend group, which, by the way, would be an interesting thing for some of you to think about. There are Christians in this room who don't have good friends, and one of the reasons is perhaps because you haven't received them. And Jesus says, if you receive a righteous person, a, a disciple of mine, you're, it's like you're receiving me in your friend group, Right? Uh, would you be friends if Jesus wanted to be friends with you? If he said, hey, let's hang out. Would you be like, no, I don't think so. All right, you'd probably be like, uh, yeah, like what are we going to do? You, I, I don't know, you set the agenda, right? Um, but if someone that, I don't know, has annoyed you in the past or somebody who, who, who wants relationship with you, uh, wants a friendship with you, and, and you're like, eh, no, I, I, they're not as cool as my, the friends I want to have. right? Remember, what does Jesus say here? Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me, right? Because ultimately, you're receiving God the Father. Verse 41. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. The one who receives a righteous person because he's a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones, even a cup of cold water, because he is my disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Remember, he's talking to these missionaries he's about to send out. He says, remember, if anybody receives you, it's like they're receiving me. And by the way, if anyone gives you a cup of cold water, anyone helps you along the way, it's like you're doing that to Jesus and, and he'll reward you for that. Last thing on point number two, I want you to expect God to notice and reward you. That's another part of the hardship that, that, that is promised here. You're gonna do some acts of service here, but just trust that God is gonna see it And reward you. Now, not everything in Matthew 10 is about hardship, but that's the overarching category because we're talking about being sent out as a disciple here. Learn to face the hardships. So I said, first, you gotta have that humble attitude, that's the prerequisite. Number two is, we gotta learn we're gonna face whatever hardships, and Jesus teaches us a lot about this. And then thirdly, I've talked a lot about relationships. It's because Jesus will end up talking a lot about relationships too. You can write this down for the third point. I want you to learn to have righteous relationships. Because if I were to break down your whole life as a disciple, uh, some of it would involve your devotion to God. Some of it would involve your church life. Some of it would involve your work life or for you, your school life. Some of it would involve family life. And we've talked about a lot of those things. But one of the biggest parts of being a disciple is your relationships with other people. In fact, that's really like the biggest thing other than your relationship with God. I mean, how many things do you really have in your life? You you, you have God, you have stuff, you have work, and you have people. You don't really have many categories beyond that, right? People kind of extend out pretty far. Once you write that down, look at Matthew chapter 18. This is a section where Jesus is gonna tell the disciples a lot of very clear instructions about what it looks like to live as a community of disciples. Because up until this point, the disciples were a small group of people surrounded by some people who were hostile towards them, others who were accepting of them, but Jesus kind of looks forward to the time where there's going to be whole groups of disciples that, that spend time together in the church. So this is another one of Jesus' sermons. If you have a red-letter Bible, you see all these words start to turn into red in chapter 18. This is another sermon, and this time it's to the disciples about what future church is going to look like. The word church shows up here, and there's no church yet, right? There's no church building, there's no pastor yet, there's none of that yet. And Jesus starts to give them instructions. So we, as on the other side of this, we have churches, we have buildings, we have pastors, we have congregations. We can take a lot away from what Jesus says here about church. Look at verse 15 says. If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Okay? Why? Well, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. So this is what happens when you are an offended party. Someone did something wrong to you and it really, really hurts your feelings and, and you can't just overlook it and you can't just get over it. Although that's the first step is, uh, you know, if, you were, if we we're all doing this all the time, by the way, we would, all we would be doing is confronting each other in our sins. So there's some glory in overlooking an offense, as Proverbs says. But if there's some kind of sin in the church, there's some kind of sin in a small group that, that, that shouldn't just be overlooked, right? go and tell that person, what happened between you and them alone. And if they listen to you, hey, you gained your brother. You have reconciliation. Verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, right? So now we're not telling everybody. We got one or two people that are going to help you. And I would uh, give you some advice from Galatians chapter 6. Who are the people you should be asking to be helpful, right? Not people who are less spiritually mature than you, but people who are more spiritually mature than you. Galatians 6 says that those who are spiritual ought to restore a man in, in gentleness and humility. Right. So if you really have a problem between you and another person, you shouldn't be running and telling all your friends. My advice, because of what Galatians 6 says, would be, tell the most mature person, and, and in your circle, that's probably your small group leader. That's who you should probably talk to first. But he says, go Tell it between uh, yeah you and, and him, and then between one or two others. Because obviously in the Old Testament law, every charge must be established on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refused to listen, well then tell it to the church. Right Now, now we're getting the church authorities involved. Now we're getting uh, pastors involved. Now we're getting uh, more people involved. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, well then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Right? Very interesting. This section about relationships in the church... Uh, have uh, us basically have to understand this. The first sub-point here, I want you to carefully confront sin. Uh, We're really, if you notice, we're really really throwing the net really broadly on this because what it means to learn as a disciple. Well, it's gonna involve all these aspects of your life. It's gonna involve hardships. Now we're totally changing gears and saying, well, what about the way that you live? You need to submit to the yoke of Jesus and say, I'm willing to let Jesus tell me how to live my life and how to have relationships, and how to, well, when something goes wrong, confront sin. And you can skip down in your Bibles. Look at verse 21. We're still in Matthew 18. Look at verse 21. After he says all this stuff about forgiveness, and all this stuff about, uh, you know, confronting sin, Peter came up to him and said, okay, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? So he doesn't say, how many times will he sin against me? Because Jesus could say, yeah, he's gonna sin against you a lot. That's how Christians are gonna be, right? By the way, Christians will continue to sin against other Christians. And if you have some weird standard of perfection that you think Christians should be perfect, well well then, you don't understand how Jesus talks about other Christians. He says, your brother is gonna sin against you. But he says here, uh, how many times do you have to forgive? Which Peter asks a good question. And then he suggests a number. And it's a high number, I think, in Peter's mind. As many as seven times, Have you ever forgiven someone seven times? Like, have they done wrong against you? They came and confessed it. They repented of it, and you forgave them. And then they sinned against you again. And they confessed it, and they repented of it, and you forgave them. And then they did it again, right? This is only time number three. And then it kept going back and forth three times. Four times. Five times. Six times. Seven times. Like, have you even gone through seven times with any person? Right? I really only think that people just the married couples in the room, probably, right? That's probably it. Even you with your siblings, how many times has it been like straight up confrontation and repentance and tears and forgiveness and hugs? Has it even been seven times with your sibling, right? I don't know. We kind of overlooked a lot of stuff in my house. It was just like, all right, brother, all right, you're good, you're good. Oh, we forgive you, we forgive you, right? Uh, But seven times is a lot. Jesus says, I don't say to you seven times, but seventy seven times wow has, has anybody done that yet right? We'd say no, why? well, because uh that would take a lot of time, and I guess if you lived with people for long enough and you know you haven't lived seventy seven years or uh, you know you're, you're just beyond seventy seven months oh, no that's not true you turn seventy seven months when you're like uh like eight or nine or something uh nine uh no nine and a half right seventy two that's six twelve yeah six uh, Sorry, almost seven, there you go. Uh, Gotta remember the chart, you know. The multiplication tables, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 77 times is a lot to forgive somebody. I think Jesus uses this as an over-the-top number to say, look, you need to forgive more than you feel like. That's the next sub-point. You need to expect to forgive more than you feel like. This is part of what it means to be a disciple, is that when you interact with other disciples, you need to expect, I'm gonna have to forgive. Have you ever put that expectation on yourself? I'm going to need to forgive this person. I'm going to need to release the debt. Hmm. I'm going to have to get along with them. I'm going to have to go further. I'm going to have to love them anyway. Hmm. A lot of disciples don't think like this. That's why this is training camp this weekend. Training camp on your relationships. Training camp on forgiveness. Expect to forgive more than you feel like. And Jesus turns to a story here in verse 23, and he says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven. Oh, no, wrong. Wait, where did I go? Am I on the right? No. No. No, I was right. My bad. Oof. Matthew 18, 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, there was one that was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents which uh, in today's money is millions of dollars. Someone came to this king and he owed the king millions of dollars. So he was doing some very risky investments and it all fell through and he didn't have anything to give him. Tens of millions of dollars. And since he could not pay, his master said, well, I guess he can't pay, what do you do? Well, back then, very strict rules about all this, you didn't just say, I declare bankruptcy, right? That's not how it worked. So it's like, I'm going to get my money out of you one way or another. And the way that usually worked was going to some sort of prison where there'd be slave type labor where you'd be forced to work and forced to work it off slowly but surely. And we saw that even as recently as 18 and part of the 1900s, that when there was debts that had to be paid, you didn't just like declare bankruptcy and everything was cool, right? When there was debts that needed to be paid, the law could come in and say, you have to pay these. You have to do it. So... He says that's what he did. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children all that he had and payment to be made. Which you might say that's evil and mean. It's not evil and mean. It's not evil and mean. It was was righteous and just because uh, this guy knew what he was getting himself into and the master says, I have to liquidate as, as many assets as I can and I guess that means selling you. Well, out of pity for him, Before that, verse 26, he says, so the servant fell on his knees and implored him, have patience with me. I will pay you everything, which is probably not true, but, you know, he says that. That's what we say when we're desperate, right? I'll do anything. I'll do anything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. So instead of saying, okay, I will release you, but now you're gonna pay back slowly but surely what you ordered. Okay, great. You said you'd pay back, great. We'll we'll get on a payment plan here. No, he releases him of the debt. This is a total reversal. In other words, he has to pay this own debt. He absorbed all this debt, this, this king did. He forgave him. Verse 28, look at it. But when that same servant went out, he found, like when he went out, like he just got forgiven and when he went out of talking to that king he he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii right that was a substantial amount of money right About a few hundred dollars maybe a thousand dollars that's a lot of money if someone owes you a thousand dollars would you say i'd like that thousand dollars back i think so You might feel a little bit differently after you've just been forgiven tens of millions of dollars. You probably say, let's just, let's not worry about it, right? I I don't want to hold the debt over anybody because I just had this massive debt that I owed released from me. Exactly. But that's not what he does. He went out, found this man, and seized him. He began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. And that's what it's like when... You and I hold things over people when they ask for forgiveness, right? It's like you're choking them. Someone apologizes you for doing wrong and you say, no, 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 say it better. Say, no, is that it? Right? Careful. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, says, have patience with me. I will pay you. Very, very similar to the other man's confession. And he refused. And he went and put him in prison that he should pay the debt. But when his fellow servants saw that what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And the anger of his master, in the anger of his master, he delivered him to the jailers that he should be. until he should pay the debt. So he put him back under the debt. So also will my heavenly father do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. As much as you need to be ready to forgive other people, another aspect of this that might help you is just you need to remember how much you have been forgiven. This turns you into a different kind of person. There are people in the room who are forgiving people. Right? and you're willing to let stuff slide, and you're, and you're willing to let it go, and my guess is, for you, it's because of this right here, because you know, like, hey, I've been forgiven. Right? We can move past things. Just know that that's true with, with Christians. You can move past things. Once there's been repentance, once there's been confession there, we can move past things. Remember how much you've been forgiven. That'll help you with righteous relationships, and all of that are just different aspects of life. And maybe this will kind of sum everything up. The fourth thing, the last thing, is I want you to learn how to actually do the will of God. Now, that's an overarching statement that could, you could put everything under that, right? Like anything you need to disciple is God's will. Like it's what God wants you to do. And if you don't know what the will of God means, it means what God wants you to do. Be willing to actually do that, to, to learn to do it. That's what it means to be a disciple best example of this that we have is in Matthew 26. It's words that you know. We've actually uh, sang a song about it. It's when Jesus was praying to the Father and he said, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to do the hard thing that you're calling me to do, but not my will, but yours be done, right? I don't feel like it, but I feel like doing what you want me to do more, so I don't feel like doing this really hard thing, whether it's forgiveness, and for Jesus, it was suffering on the cross for the sins of his people. But that needs to be the mentality that you carry as a disciple. I want to do what God wants me to do. You could summarize wisdom decisions and, and making wise decisions basically with that. What does God want me to do? What does God want? Me? If you ever come to me with a question? Right about what you should do, the first and foremost response that I hope that I give you, or at least I help you think along these lines, is well, what does God want you to do? Right, and you say, how do I know what God wants me to do? Well, the rest of Scripture has a lot to say about what God wants you to do. If it's about a sin problem, well, we just read about Matthew 18. What does God want you to do? Well, probably wants you to listen to what He already told you. What does God want you to do with the relationship? What does God want you to do with the sport? That's the that's the terms we need to be thinking about. Not my will but yours be done. Like, you're used to doing your will. You you do what you want to do, right? We do what we feel like is more comfortable. We do what we feel like will get us the best results for us. But Jesus says, here's how you need to think. Not my will, but yours be done. That's what it means to be a disciple. That's why we have to submit to the yoke of learning from Jesus. One last passage for us to turn to, then we'll close. Matthew chapter 12. I hope this passage serves as an encouragement to you as it does to me, Matthew chapter 12, so much in this book is about doing what God says and actually like following. And that was yesterday's sermon, right? It was like, are you actually going to follow? The parable of those two sons, right? It's like one of them said he was going to follow, the other didn't want to follow, but then the one who did, they did the, the right thing. Same thing with uh, the man who was told, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Right? It's like, because he didn't do the right thing because he heard stuff, he thought he did stuff, but he didn't repent of his sins. Here, Jesus talks about the people who actually do the right thing from the heart, who are actually doing discipleship stuff. In verse 46, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. So you got Mary, you got James, you got Judas, who's also called Jude, right? Not Judas Iscariot, don't freak out. Um, but Jude, who wrote the book of the Bible, Jude, uh, Judas, or Judah, um, got all these brothers, and, and, and Jesus' mom outside. Have you read the Bible? Do you know that Jesus' mom, she a good or bad character? She's a good character, right? Uh, so there's nothing wrong with Jesus' mom, but look, look what he says. He replied to the man who told him, who is my mother, and who are my brothers? That's a weird question. Uh, the people outside the door, huh. those are your mother and those are your brothers. Like, what do you what do you mean, Jesus? And by, by the way, what does he mean? What does it mean to be a mother or a brother of somebody? Right. Biologically, it means that you know you, you share DNA, but it also means a the highest level of connection that's possible. Right. To be blood, to be family. Right? That's my family. He says, "Okay, I have a question for you. Oh, my family's standing outside. Who's my real family?" who is my family? Well, good question. He says, and stretching out his hands towards his disciples, right? So he's talking to a dude who says, hey, your mom and your bros are outside. And he says, who, who is my family? And he points at his disciples. He says, stretching his hands towards his disciples, he said, here, my mother and my brothers, for whoever, not just those 12 or whoever else was included, there's probably other women, there's probably other dudes, more than just the 12 were with them, right? But whoever, that could be you, that could be me, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, sister, and mother. Right? <laughs> you are so closely associated to Jesus if you're one of the people in this room who follows him. If you're a disciple... If you do the will of God, if you're the one at your family and at your school and on your sports team and you're the one doing the right thing, Jesus says, you're like, you're my family. He doesn't say son. He doesn't say daughter. It's very interesting. We always think Jesus is going to call us son or daughter. He doesn't. He calls us brother and sister. He says, God is our father. We're sons and daughters adopted of God the Father, but we're not sons and daughters of Jesus. We're brothers and sisters of Jesus, And for the old ladies, mothers, right? Because, um, I don't know, just to make the old ladies feel included, right? Jesus says, they're like my moms, right? I hope this encourages you as you think about what it means to follow, what it means to learn, that if you're one of the people that is doing this, Jesus has a very close relationship to you. He has a fondness of you. That's a weird way of putting it. But he, he, he loves you a lot. And more than just, oh, yeah, Jesus loves everybody. No, he he really cares about you in particular, individually, knowing all your circumstances, knowing all the hairs on your head. If you're one of the people that's doing God's will, whether anybody accepts it or not, whether anybody thinks you are or not, or people think you're weird, or people think you're too righteous, or people think you're too whatever, if you're someone doing God's will, um, Jesus says you're like family to him. And that's really what starts this whole new process when a person becomes a Christian. I know we've talked about that a little bit, but... um, When you become a Christian, you get a new family and all the relationships that may end with some people, maybe even in your biological family that Jesus says, well, also, you know, there's a whole group of new relationships that start, which is why I hope that if if you're a Christian here in True North, and maybe you just become a Christian this weekend, that you seek out tight-knit, really close, like brother and sister relationships with the other Christians that are here. And I've seen how so many of you this year have done a really good job at that. So many of you have tried to plug in. Instead of taking steps away, you take steps towards the people in True North, whether it be on a Saturday night after service getting food at In-N-Out Burger, like we always have to do. I don't know why we always go there. Um, Whether it means staying and talking in the Compass Courtyard after Wednesday night, whether it looks like getting Starbucks or a better coffee place that is much better coffee than that. No offense, Annie. Uh, somewhere with a girl in your small group or you go get food or some of you guys have been working out with other guys in your in your small group there you go joey that's you uh yeah. but like i've seen so many of you like pull tighter pull closer and build closer bonds with each other if you're a disciple and you don't feel like you got close relationships, that's one of the reasons why we go away to camp, so that this weekend is the weekend you can look around and see your brothers and your sisters and say, I'm going to commit to be not just like a a mutual acquaintance, like a friend, like, oh, we just do some stuff at church together, but like really brother and sister. That's what God calls us to in this new family of his that he puts together. There's a lot more we can say. There's some small group questions. You can take out your phones right now and uh, take a picture of these application questions before we break and before we, we sing one more song, but you take a picture of those, and I want you to tonight, as we think about these, uh, these big topics, to think individually, am I a disciple, am I a follower? And then, if I am a follower, how am I going to use this training time to grow closer in my relationship with God and closer in my relationship with the other brothers and sisters here. So let me pray. We're going to call the worship team up. They're going to come up, sing one more song, and then uh, Joseph will dismiss us to small groups after that. Let's pray. God, we recognize that your word is true, and we're thankful that we uh, get to be learners from you. We know that it is pretty academic, and we, we recognize that that's a challenge sometimes for us, but we know that it's more than academic. It's relational, It's with our whole hearts, and I just ask that this weekend, with our whole hearts, we would seek to learn from you, and that we would get in new patterns and habits as we go back home, willing to learn from you, not just intellectual head knowledge, but more importantly, learn the practical um, outworkings of our life, whether it be with relationships, whether it be uh, with evangelism, like like we'll talk about tomorrow. I just pray that we will become better followers and better learners of you and that we would actually put into practice the things that we read about in the scriptures. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.